CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Looking for something fantastic to do on a Tuesday night? Hey, I got just the answer for you. On Tuesday, November 7th at 7 p.m., come on down to Maria's at 960 West 31st Street. And Maya and I will be leading a discussion on politics in Chicago, Asian-American politics in Chicago, and any other politics in Chicago you want to talk about. Alderwoman Nicole Lee will be there. Alderwoman Lenny Mana Hoppenworth will be there. And uh, we'll be talking yeah, mainly about Asian-American politics in the city of Chicago, the growth of a new community, politically speaking, the influence it has, the changes that may occur in Chicago politics uh, as a result. City is constantly changing, ladies and gentlemen, and you want to stay on top of things. So come on down to First Tuesdays. Maya and I will be leading the conversation Tuesday, November 7th at 7 p.m. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, November 2nd starts now. On today's show, making his triumphant return, writer and editor for In These Times, Miles Komflasen. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, if you want to know what Ben Jarofsky is going to write about, all you have to do is go to ChicagoReader.com and you can find out. If you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. He's got bonus interviews. He's got columns, all that stuff. I'll spell it for you. J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Sanctuary City Thursday, and here's why. Uh, Yes, uh, I just want to say a shout out of sorts to uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson and the team that runs the city of Chicago. Mayor Johnson has continually showed that he knows how to play the game. And, you know, there was just funny when I uh, think back when uh, Mayor Johnson was candidate Johnson, uh, the concern from corporate Chicago, mainstream Chicago, the north side of Chicago, the Paul Fallows voters, the Arnie Duncan uh, voters, very concerned. Will Mayor Johnson understand how the game is played? You know, it's a very sophisticated chess game running a city. <laughs> So many people, Ben, he he has to know how to run a city. I don't know if he's prepared to know how to run a city. I'm like, what school do you go to to learn how to be mayor of the city of Chicago? Mayor Rahm is never mayor of anything. You elected him. Never, Nobody ever, ever asked, is Mayor Rahm prepared to run a city like Chicago? So uh, what are the little tricks that Rahm used to do uh, back uh, when he was mayor of the city of Chicago? Was when he wanted to block a legislative initiative. Uh, that coming before the voters in a referendum, uh, he would have some flunky in the city council uh, propose a referendum uh, for the November ballot. Uh, and Chicago, this is when Chicagoans woke up and learned that there was a rule limiting the number of questions to a ballot to three. One, two, three. So during the age of Rom, 
Uh, there was activists were constantly trying to get on the ballot, a referendum asking voters what they thought about an elected school board. Well, Rom didn't want that becoming coming before the voters because Rom knew, like everybody else knew, that would have passed overwhelmingly. And then he would have to explain why he's doing something in defiance of what the voters want. Rom wanted to control the school board. Because controlling the school board means that there's no chance whatsoever that anybody's going to object how you're spending TIF dollars, in which hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars are diverted from the public schools into bank accounts that Rom controls. You put one lefty on that school board. Just imagine if Miles Conflasser is my distinguished guest, proud graduate of Whitney Young High School, had been on the school board, and Mayor Rom's uh, had come to the school board with a proposal to spend $1.3 billion rebuilding an already gentrified, no, gentrifying, an already gentrifying area, Lincoln Yards. For, uh, Miles Conflasso would say, no, Mayor Rahm, that's taking $500 million away from the public schools where we need them the most. You, you couldn't afford to have someone like that on the school board in Chicago. You had to have school board members who would never, ever, ever question how the mayor is handling uh, their budget or ever, ever, ever uh, question the diversion of the hundreds of millions of dollars every year uh, in TIF funds. So that is how Mayor Rahm uh, bottled up any uh, resolution or every referendum to um, uh, have uh, elected school board. Fast forward to today, we uh, the city of Chicago is dealing with what everybody in the city calls a crisis, I call it an opportunity, but I'm the only person in the city who views it this way. And that is Venezuelans being busted or flown into Chicago, uh, overflowing police stations and at the airport. City of Chicago doesn't know what to do with them. Apparently, there's a difference between an immigrant from Venezuela and an immigrant from Ukraine. Not quite sure what that difference is. Uh, we haven't had a committee discussion on that. But Chicago seems able to absorb immigrants from Ukraine, but Immigrants from Venezuela just blows our little Chicago minds. Boom. That's the sound of the Chicago mind being blown. Uh, anyway, Anthony Beal, uh, the alderman from the Ninth Ward, one of the aldermen who's out, just vehemently opposed to any kind of uh, tent city or uh, any kind of aid to help the new uh, Venezuelan immigrants, has proposed that the city uh, have a referendum, whether it want to abolish its uh, sanctuary city status and that goes back this actually goes sanctuary city goes back to the 1980s with harold but more particular mayor rom yes that mayor rom got the city of chicago uh, to pass a welcoming city ordinance uh back i think this was like 2016 something like that uh 2000 early 2017 donald trump had just been elected uh, president of the united states and had made um some pretty ugly remarks about uh Muslim immigrants coming uh, to Chicago and Mayor Rahm coming to this country, how he's going to send them back to whatever country they came from. And uh, Mayor Rahm was uh, leading the charge locally. Uh, and I'm just reading from the city's website. Uh, here's the uh, here's what they say. Uh, as Mayor Rahm has repeatedly reinforced, Chicago's status as a welcoming city for immigrants uh, is not and will never be shaken. We will not cower to intimidation and refuse to back down as Washington fails to enact comprehensive immigration reforms. And this is in response to uh, rhetoric by the president-elect 
with his anti-Muslim rhetoric and his proposal to withhold funds from sanctuary cities. So that's the stand that Mayor Rahm took back in 2016, and Anthony Beal was with him on that because, you know, he was with Mayor Rahm. What Mayor Rahm Mayor wanted, that's what he got. So now he's proposing, Beal, uh, a referendum, a citywide referendum that would get the voters to respond. And right now it's a little iffy how the voters would go on this issue. Let's see what Miles has to say on this one if uh, we get to it when we get to this. It's kind of iffy right now. If I had to put money in Vegas, I'd say uh, in a referendum, the city of Chicago would vote no. Everything's dependent, of course, on how it's worded and who, how many people are uh, come out strong one way or another. But my guess is that there's a very strong possibility there would be a no vote uh, on uh, Chicago remaining uh, a sanctuary city, which would be really embarrassing to the city of Chicago, to put it mildly. And Mayor Brandon Johnson doesn't want to entertain that in any way. Uh, and so what did he do? He took a little page out of Rom's book and he had uh, he's having his allies put on the ballot um, series of questions in November, thus elbowing out the, uh, or maybe it's March. I guess that would be the, I'm not quite sure when it would come before the voters, March or November, uh, but it would elbow out uh, any referendum on uh, Chicago remaining a sanctuary city. And just out of curiosity, I went to the city website uh, to see what um, questions of great importance uh, that Mayor Johnson was proposing to put before the voters so they would not get an opportunity uh, to vote on Alderman Beal's sanctuary city matter. Uh, one of them is bring Chicago home. I support that. I believe uh, absolutely the voters. First of all, you can't enact a, a tax on the sale of well-to-do, uh, 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 excuse me, on expensive uh, homes in Chicago without the voters uh, weighing in on it. So, uh, yes, I welcome that. The other one is a submission of public question by referendum proposing to allow voters to determine if Chicago shall increase the number of public mental health clinics. Is this a legitimate question to put before the voters of the city of Chicago? I wholeheartedly believe uh, that we sh should um, have more public mental health clinics uh, in the city of Chicago. I think it's a disgrace that the, uh, the city council uh, joined Mayor Rahm in voting, and they voted 50 to nothing to close those. So, okay, put that on the ballot. I think it's a legitimate question. Once and for all, let's just get the people of the city of Chicago to say, yes, we're all losing our freaking minds. We need more, not less, mental health care. And here's the third one. The third one. Does Brandon Johnson look good in his nice blue suit? No, just kidding. That's not the question, but it might as well be. Uh, submission of a question proposing to allow voters to determine if Chicago shall create flooding mitigation and response plan. Oh, come on, Mayor Johnson. You could have come up with a more legitimate question to put to the voters as <laughs> to block the sanctuary city referendum. Of course, of course, there was flooding, serious flooding in the city of Chicago in a recent storm. Yes, we need a flooding plan. We didn't need to know. We don't need the voters to weigh in on whether we need a flooding plan. We need a flooding plan. That's just a question you cooked up to keep Beale's sanctuary city proposal off the ballot. Come on, be a little more creative than Rom, at least with the questions. I can remember the questions. Rom's questions were so innocuous. Do I look good with my hair combed to the left or do I look good with my hair combed to the right? Anyway, Brandon Johnson's learning how to play the game. Don't cry, Arnie Duncan. You were worried about it. 
It's not that hard being mayor of the city of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. It really isn't. All right, without further ado, Miles Conflason, dear friend of the show, editor, writer for In These Times. Uh, Miles, I am going to um, not let you duck and dodge in this one. No ducking and dodging on the Ben Jarofsky show. Do you think uh, those are three legitimate questions to pose to the voters uh, to block the sanctuary city referendum uh, being put on the ballot? Go ahead. Uh, good to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show um, and uh, never letting me duck or dodge uh, as, you know, it's real journalism here on the Jarowski show. No spin zone. Um, I, I I have not seen the language of this uh, flooding question, so I kind of reserve judgment on that. Although I will say, as you know, you know, there had to be federal funds actually um, provided by the Biden administration due to the uh, amount of flooding this summer. So, I mean, that is clearly a, a real issue in the city. I would tend to agree with you. I think that regardless, we need to, you know, the city needs to take more effort um, in that, uh, uh, along that line. And I also think that the reopening of mental health clinics is a really critical um, issue. And certainly when it comes to bring Chicago home, um, that's required, right, by, by state law for that to be put before voters. So that has to be. And city council has moved it forward at last week's meeting. It sounds like next week, most likely they will vote in support of actually getting that um, out of the whole council and moving that forward, which, as we know, would raise um, taxes on the most wealthy in, uh, buildings sold, those between one and two million dollars. It would decrease taxes on 95 percent of uh, properties because anything below one million of the, the the tax would actually go down. So this is effectively a tax cut for um, you know those who might sell their their homes that are not like multimillionaires. Um, and it's really just the the, the top edge of um, you know the finances in the city that would be impacted by this. And it would be used to help find housing for um, what is it more than like sixty five thousand uh, homeless individuals in the city. Um, and it would provide, uh, you know, funding for then finding permanent housing. And I think that that's a really critical issue, especially when we're seeing, you know, what's happening as a result of, um, you know, the busing of migrants into the, into the city and the lack of, you know, you mentioned why are the migrants from South America, from Venezuela being treated di differently from the ones from Ukraine? That's a really important question. Um, and it has to do with how they are being federally recognized. The reason that there was resettlement funds and social service funds for, um, you know, those who considered refugees coming from Ukraine after the war is the same reason that there was resettlement for um, Afghan uh, citizens that came um, after, you know, in 2021 to, um, to Chicago is because there was dedicated federal funding streams. Well, there hasn't been any of that. Um, provided due to this busing of, of migrants to Chicago and, and other cities. And so that's really an issue for the federal government, you know, for the Biden administration to have to approve to open up those lines of funding. That's not a decision um, that the city can make on its own. So that's just, you know, to give some context for why there is that difference. I think you're completely right to, to point it out, but I think we have to focus on where, you know, that funding would come from. And then more broadly, you know, about this issue of the whether, you know, voters would push for approve a sanctuary city or not. I, you know, I've talked about this on the show before. I kind of think that question's already been decided. Look at who our political leadership is. Look who our mayor is. You know, people in the city of Chicago have time after time um, said they want progressive leadership. 
and they want to have a welcoming city, you know, that provides for a decent standard of life for all people. What they don't want is to be fighting over scraps and having, you know, there be these um, internal racial conflicts flared up, which is the, certainly the intended effect of these Republican governors who are busing migrants and trying to create a crisis, you know, and have people being fighting over scraps rather than us investing in um, fair and adequate, you know, housing and resources um, for all people. And I don't think, you know, and also, you know, let's be clear, like, if this was going to be an actual question on the ballot, there would be so much money flooding in from white right wing groups to try to um, delude people and um, get them to vote uh, the wrong way by, you know, pulling on the worst fears and the most kind of racist sentiments you can imagine, you know, Trump mega style stuff about immigrants being and certainly certain types of immigrants from certain places being criminals and all kinds of things. I mean, we've seen that before. That is definitely the playbook. I mean, we even saw huge amounts of money come in for the uh, to stop the fair tax here in Illinois. Imagine what we would see if we had a sanctuary city. I think that would just stoke some of the worst kind of racial resentments. Um, so that's kind of my feeling on the matter. I think that that question is pretty settled, that Chicago is, you know, decided to be a sanctuary city and we should move forward under that, um, you know, approach. And um, yeah, I'll have to look at the the, the flooding to see whether I think that really uh, deserves to make the cut. Uh, it doesn't really I, ask a question about the bears rebuild here. Ask a question about publicly financing the bear stadium. There you go. Uh, there's a question I'd love to see uh, the public weigh in on. Uh, and, but I don't know the flooding thing was, we should be taking care of our flooding needs regardless. And I, uh, that was a very interesting point uh, that you made uh, in that riff where you were talking, you, you mentioned though, briefly the fair tax. Uh, and millions and millions of dollars, a lot, a lot of it uh, put up by Ken, uh, Kenny G. Ken Griffin, uh, who used to live in Chicago and, and would bankroll the Republican initiatives in the state and has subsequently moved uh, to Florida. Uh, and uh, he and his allies spent millions to defeat the fair tax because the fair tax, uh, this, this gets more into the bring Chicago home issue, the fair tax directly impacts them to the benefit of everybody else. So they have a, they had a, a, a financial interest in destroying it uh, and, and defeating it. And they did, a, uh, they were succeeded in manipulating the public to get people in many instances to vote against their self-interests. I am not sh so sure they would put as much money into uh, defeating the sanctuary city or supporting the uh, uh, the sanctuary city effort uh, by Anthony Beale. I think they're going to put their money into fighting the bring Chicago home because that's a parallel matter. Bring Chicago home again, as Miles pointed out, uh, would raise the tax on the sale of the uh, most expensive properties in the city of Chicago, lower the taxes on the less expensive city of Chicago. So it would be a progressive form of taxation, similar to the fair tax, which would raise the highest rates. Uh, and one thing is for certain, uh, the, the, the big money in the Republican Party will fight any form of progressivity that will we, that'll hurt their part. They'll spend money, Miles, to uh, on consultants so they won't have to spend money on taxes. You know what I'm saying? I don't know how much tax dollars Kenny G would have spent uh, if uh, we had passed the fair tax. 
I wonder if it would have equaled the amount he spent to defeat the fair tax. But that's where I think the money will go. Your thoughts? Well, I agree. They've already, uh, you know, committed to doing that. A lot of these forces, these real estate um, coalitions and everything. And, you know, in fact, one of them called some lobby called it an urban doom loop. You know, that's what they called the bring Chicago home ordinance as if this providing, you know, ha dedicated housing for people that, you know, many of whom are veterans. And, and certainly when we look in Chicago, you know, Chicago, you know, black Chicagoans are make up about 30% of the city or so less than that now um, and make up nearly 80% of the city's homeless population. There's a clear um, racial dynamic at play here, too. And, um, you know, people deserve look at the U.N. Charter. You know, there is a there is a right to housing that uh, says that we you know, are committing to providing the basic standards of life for all people. And certainly our city has not followed through on that because we uh, continue to divest from the type of services and resources, namely public housing um, or any kind of social based housing that would allow people to live in dignified lives. And instead, we have this kind of um, shredded safety net um, of, of, of isolated programs that, of course, people can't access when they don't have an address, because that's the first thing you need to be able to access, you know, a whole uh, array of um, city and government programs. And so, you know, these forces are already aligned against that because they, as you said, are dead set against anything that would take away from their bottom line. And of course, this would redistribute wealth, effectively take it from some of the richest uh, landowners and corporations that are the ones that purchase these properties and then funnel that into a dedicated stream. And a housing first approach is similar to what they did in Houston, where Houston took, you know, it, over like a 10 year period, reduced its uh, homeless population by like two thirds because they did an actual housing first style where they didn't have, you know, requirements for sobriety or people having jobs or whatever. They just did got people into housing and provided wraparound services. That is the approach that you want to have if you want to have a safer city too, you know, like that is those, that's a precondition for their being, um, you know, calmness and peaceful residents that are able to, you know, kind of better have, have better lives um, that then don't resort to certainly, you know, the type of activity we see that comes when you have a, a divided population that is, you know, living under economic scarcity. Where I would kind of break with you, though, is I do think that there is a vested interest as well in creating the type of political issues that would come from a vote for a sanctuary city if people are able to gin up that type of racial resentment um and that i think the same forces these like corporate actors and right-wing interests they want to see brandon johnson's administration fail they want to see progressive policy fail because that is going to allow them to bring back a Rahm Emanuel type who will just sign off on whatever, you know, the business community wants. And key to that is forming these fissures within the residents of the city and getting people to turn inward and fight against each other and focus less on things like, you know, there being progressive taxes uh, implemented that would, you know, benefit low-income residents, that there being things like reopening mental health clinics, like raising the sub-minimum wage or eliminating the sub-minimum wage. And um, all of these kind of progressive goals, those fly in the face of the interests of those same type of forces. And I think that they would be just as willing to try to spend on 
um, a referendum that could showcase that type of um, those type of fissures that they want to see and, and and put on display for these like the most cynical reasons, basically, so that they can continue to benefit and profit from um, working people being screwed over and being, you know, told that they have to fight again over scraps rather than try to demand something more. And I just think this also speaks to why this is, you know, people, I agree with you, actually, I don't think you're the only person in Chicago that thinks that this is an opportunity rather than a crisis, you know, the amount of new migrants that are coming into the city. But it also puts on display, like what decades of neoliberal policy has wrought, where we don't have the type of investments in social services that would be necessary to immediately house the level of incoming migrants and refugees that we are getting. Instead, what we have is the one kind of, you know, public um, program that has been invested in is police. And so, you know, and that's where we see a lot of these migrants going because they're some of the only places that are open 24 hours is on is in police stations because we don't have a mass shelter system. We don't have, you know, the type of open dedicated housing stream like old, you know, hot, uh, hotels or something that can be retrofitted. Instead, they're going into police stations and that's creating all kinds of conflict. Um, and so I think it's, it shows that these are structural issues and the way to address them is by changing priorities and where where funding streams go so that we actually have the type of like you know civic institutions and resources that allow us to intake migrants at this level and kind of resettle them and bring them into a community rather than treating it like it's some kind of a problem that needs to be solved or a crisis that we need to address and instead we can really focus on it as an opportunity so i think you know we have to think about those kind of core structural root issues before we can actually make any kind of broader claims about whether, you know, this is a good or bad thing for, um, for, for, for the city. It's certainly, I think, long-term, I look forward to the days we have, you know, Venezuelan restaurants all like down Milwaukee Avenue and I can, you know, go in and uh, experience some other kind of like cultural vitality and life in this city. I think that is nothing but a good thing. Um, but people's needs need to be cared for. And I think that that is like an immediate thing we need to we need to focus on. You know, what uh, uh, I was listening to you and thinking about all the bizarre uh, contradictions embedded in this issue. Uh, you were talking about this is an opportunity for sort of like a Rom. Well, I doubt Rom himself would ever come back uh, as mayor. He's uh, clearly eyeing Richard Durbin's senatorial seat, a subject for another time. Uh, but a Rom like, you know, uh, mayor of the city of Chicago. Once again, it was it's Rom's welcoming city uh, ordinance that uh, Anthony Beale is attacking. And that uh, is uh, <laughs> it just shows you how the issue of immigration uh, has shifted over the last six years, uh, particularly uh, in a terrible way, in my humble opinion, get your response uh, to the way um, in this particular matter, the Democrats have dealt with uh, the little maneuver by uh, Gregory Abbott of sending uh, busloads of Venezuelan immigrants to cities like Chicago. I believe many of my guests agree with me. Or some of them, I think, may have put this forward. Chicago was targeted for two reasons. One, it's Obama's city, so it'll always be the Democratic city. But two, it's where the Democratic National Convention will be. Miles, uh, in the summer of 2024, you would think that Biden, Mayor Johnson, and Governor Pritzker uh, 
former mayor Lori Lightfoot, all the leaders of Civic Chicago would have gotten together and go, all right, we're going to have this huge party celebrating the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. Let's make something significant happen that we engineer that help the people of Chicago so that they're like, if for nothing else, they're active and happy supporters of this party. But no, Miles, they've gone in the other direction. You mentioned that there's the federal funding that's lacking, the inability to get the feds to kick in the money to help pay for some building programs. If you had federal government constructing housing in the city of Chicago, Miles, just think about it. And you open up that housing to absolutely everyone in Chicago, not just the new immigrants. If you said to people on the south side of Chicago who are homeless, let's go. Here's your housing. You know, if you had public meetings at the promontory where you were saying, we're building housing for Woodlawn, we're building housing for Englewood, you know, which we've ignored for how many freaking years? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this is a quote-unquote crisis, but we're going to turn it into an opportunity for everyone. Could you just imagine if somebody, like, came up with an idea like that? And But they haven't – that thing, Miles, no initiative, no funding, no – declaration of support you got alderman yancey desmond yancey the fifth ward going in get yelled at by the residents has nothing to offer them i i just find it very frustrating the party that i support year and year we're going to get into this why i keep supporting the democratic party is so helpless on this particular issue why we have a democratic mayor a democratic governor and a democratic president of the united states and they all want to have a party in chicago in what is it going to be July, August, Miles? I know I'll be out of town for that one. Huh? You you don't want to hobnob with the uh, Democratic Party elite, oh, Miles? I'll let you do the hobnobbing. Uh, so explain to me this inability of three leading Democrats and throw Durbin in the mix. He's another Democrat. Tammy Duckworth, she's another Democrat. How come they couldn't come together to figure this out? Go ahead. Well, I think it's it's not that they can't; it's that they're they won't, and especially it's. I think it, it does come down to um, the state and federal levels. I mean, that's ultimately where we. I mean, we just saw the mayor release um, a budget that involves having to close a like half billion dollar um, deficit. And that speaks to the lack of financial um, ability because we can't. You know, the city on its own. That's the same reason we have the um, bring Chicago home real estate transfer tax going to um, a referendum ahead of voters because the city doesn't have taxing power on its own and it has all these rules it has to go through when it comes to it can't even like raise a financial transaction tax on its own that has to go through the state level um, the federal government you know in, in some ways the state has more ability and power to you know financial flexibility and we're seeing it with these massive aid packages that are going you know ac- around the the globe um you know now they are asking for you know more billions of dollars for um aid to israel including military aid we've seen all the aid packages to um ukraine and yet you know people are asking like where is money that will be used to um provide for betterment of um lives here in the u.s on our own shores and i think that's that particularly 
um, stands out when you look at things like this um, situation with incoming migrants, that there needs to be the same type of um, support systems that were provided. I mean, you look at it, there was like, there was about like 17,000 Ukrainians that resettled in Chicago, have resettled in Chicago. And you didn't hear anything about sleeping on police stations or, you know, there being, you, you know, this being a crisis or any kind of th these stories that have like overtaken the, um, the municipal news here in Chicago, because we didn't do what we're doing now. You know, we didn't, we didn't create this. We've had the federal government provide funding. And in a very short period of time, we're able to, for one, provide immediate housing, which was largely putting people in, you know, hotels, sometimes shelters and other um, locations, but there was money for it. And then also to find and place in permanent housing. And that's about, you know, we have more than that now, but not, you know, a, a huge number more of these, um, of migrants that have been brought in since May um, in the recent round of, um, of buses. And yet it is, it is a crisis and that's a choice. And it's a choice that I think is being made by federal officials because they don't consider it, you know, a priority in the same way that they did in when it came to um, Ukrainians. And I think you're completely right that this is certainly has to do with the fact that the Democratic National Convention is coming here. It's a choice being carried out by um, Republican elected officials and their right wing backers. Let's be clear, you know, that there are, you know, there's a whole donor class behind this that similarly wants to see chaos basically in Chicago and for Chicago to look like a city that's like overrun. And it's, I think it's a, it's a racist vision of like considering Chicago to be like a crime infested, dangerous place. Um, so that, you know, they can make Democrats look bad as like a party that doesn't really know that it, it has an agenda that is against like safety and well-being for for Americans. And that's why they are doing this. It's all part of a plan to showcase that. And it's already being showcased because you see that in mainstream media. And you certainly see it if you watch any of the right wing media. I mean, that's like what they're constantly focusing is on is any videos they can find of like migrants on the streets in Chicago and using that to cast us that way. But certainly by August of next year, that's their goal is to get that to be like the main um, takeaway from looking at Chicago. And I think you're right. It's in the Democratic Party's interest to come up with a real plan. And that doesn't mean like, I mean, it could be what you're discussing. It would be great if there was, you know, investments in building public housing and having like the government get behind built constructing new public housing in the city, some kind of like social housing. And we, you know, there have been some examples of that. If you look, you know, especially in the 35th and the 33rd Ward, we've seen a number of new 100% affordable housing projects go up in the past couple of years and go up fairly quickly when it comes to, you know, the standard of how long it usually takes for such kind of buildings to, to operate. But we could scale that up on a mass scale. I think you're right. But at the very least, there needs to be that time of type of funding uh, streams for resettlement that we saw when it came to Afghanistan and Ukraine, um, because it's also related to decades of U.S. foreign policy in countries and, you know, Honduras and Venezuela and the Northern Triangle like this. This is the result of um, the kind of economic chaos that we uh, and crises that we are seeing in South America that's driving this migration. It directly relates to how the U.S. has 
uh, acted on a global stage. And so I think we need to take responsibility for that. And ways to do that includes providing that funding. When you ask why aren't they doing it, I mean, I can't get in their heads, but I do think that it's just not considered the same type of priority as it was when it came to um, to Ukraine. And that to me is like a sad referendum on the state of of the National Democratic Party. Yeah, I uh, and just uh, the state of America today. Uh, and yeah, we'll avoid uh, uh, taking the deep dive in the conversation about uh, the United States' bizarre uh, attitudes about the country of Venezuela. Uh, and uh, that we'll have that another time, although I urge everybody, uh, I did a long interview with uh, Matt Ginsburg, shout out Matt, and I urge everybody to check out what Matt had to say on that subject. It was about a few weeks ago. Um, all right, let's uh, shift gears and talk about... Um, a little glimmer of good news uh, in the world. The last time you were in the, uh, on the show, uh, you were laying out sort of the strategies that the UAW, the United Auto Workers, were following in their strike against the big three manufacturers. Uh, just so folks know, in these times, uh, the publication that uh, Miles edits and writes for is a leftist publication with a heavy emphasis on union news, a lot of labor news uh, in, in these times. So if you're interested in following what's going on in the labor movement, I encourage you uh, to read in these times. Uh, and so I turned to Miles for his expertise in these things, just following, <clears throat> you know, the different uh, crises uh, uh, and strikes and uh, labor conflicts and labor uh, uh, victories uh, around the country. Uh, and you laid out the strategy that the UAW employed. And the time you were on the show was about three weeks ago. It, uh, they are not close to a settlement. Well, since uh, you've been on the show, I think it's been three settlements. Uh, they're not official. You can update us and all. But it looks as though the strategy that Fain uh, and UAW set out uh, has worked. So that's some pretty good news. Take it away, Miles, and explain to folks what went down. Well, we just witnessed... Um by this auto workers strike, which was historic, both in terms of how it operated and in terms of the concessions that uh, were uh, won by uh, the workers and the union themselves. It's nothing short of a complete reset in terms of the dynamic of employers and employees um, bargaining um, over contract demands and how using the ultimate tool uh, that the labor movement has of withholding labor can be employed in an effective way that not only um, leads to big financial material wins for workers, but also um, builds public support for the labor movement as a whole and um, provides a pathway forward for hopefully building back some level of union density in, um, in the U.S. And that, I think, is kind of the most critical element of this, because we have seen a complete decimation of the labor movement, you know, over the past 40 years. And that specifically is what Sean Fain, the new president of the UAW, who oversaw this whole strategy, what he pointed to in his comments about these contracts that um, have now been, you know, there's TAs, tentative agreements reached with, first it was Ford, then Stellantis, and finally GM, um, just a few days ago. So those do need to be voted on. But when, you know, talking about these uh, deals, what he said was, you know, that we've had a class war raging for 40 years and we're fighting, we're starting 
to win that war, you know, or, you know, make some advancements. And I think that's a good way of thinking about this is because it might, you might think it's just the 150,000 auto workers covered under the UAW deal that are going to benefit um, from, um, from these contracts. If the membership decides to vote for them, it looks like they most likely will, you know, considering the historic gains that are in them. Um, but they're not, it's not just benefits for those workers. And to, just to be clear about the, what these contracts include, it's a 25% wage increase, I think, at, at all of them. And so that is more, to put it in context, that's more in like a total increase than they had seen in 20, over 20 years of contract negotiations. You know, they've from, I think, 2001 to 2022, they had seen like 24, 23 or 24% wage increase. Now over this four and a half year contract, they're going to see an immediate 25% increase. And the biggest increase is going to go to the lowest paid workers because they've also been able to eliminate tiered employment. That was a huge part of this demand is because over the past year, a uh, number of years, especially since the auto bailout in 2008, 2009, we saw under Obama, they forced these huge concessions on workers that included giving up um, cost of living increases, COLAs. Well, they won back COLAs in this. Now there's going to be immediate cost of living increases for workers in the contracts. And they eliminated these tiered positions, which are really, um, you know, toxic in a workplace because you can have two workers doing effectively the same job and making radically different amounts of pay. And that, you know, of course, breaks solidarity in the workplace when you have people kind of fighting against each other doing the same labor. Well, they've eliminated that, meaning that some of these lowest paid employees, especially the temp workers, could see like 150% uh, raise. Uh, you know, in the coming months. And while it is 25% like base raise, some of these, you know, longer term employees as well, who start to see like 30, 33% raises, that's getting close to what the union's initial um, demand was, which was a 40% increase. And people thought that was so audacious. How dare they do that? You had Jim Cramer freaking out on CNBC saying, you know, this is going to destroy capitalism. Da, 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 da. Um, well, I, I, you know, I can only drink his tears right now um, <laughs> over this contract. But, but, but that's getting close to that. And, you know, they didn't get everything, like, right? They ran, they, they, they were talking about a 32 hour work week. That was not one. They were talking about getting, you know, pension, defined pension pe uh, plans back. They didn't completely win on that, although they got a lot more funding going into 401ks. But um, they also won the right to strike at factories over, fa over factory closures. That's huge because that provides them the direct, um, ability to not just strike over contract stuff, right? That's like almost always the rule in labor, in, in, you know, unions is that you can only really strike if there's, you know, an unfair labor charge or if the contract is up and you reach an impasse, that's when, when you can strike. Well, now they can, they won the, the right to strike over plant closures. And we know that that is a tool that, um, the automakers use to drive this race to the bottom to close down unionized plants and move them to either like the non-union south or even south of the border to Mexico um, and other places where they can pay lower wages and yeah, run this race to the bottom. Well, now they can strike over that. And just for one example, the other kind of win that was in the, one of these contracts with Stellantis, uh, which is formerly Chrysler, right here in Illinois, they had closed down the Belvedere plant. 
And this was a huge, you know, this is, you know, a huge employer in the community providing livelihoods for community members. And saying, you know, one fell swoop, the company just decided, oh, we're done. We're going to, you know, we're going to take these jobs elsewhere. And the union got them in this contract to agree to reopen that plant and to have it focus on EV uh, vehicles, on, ele on, on electric vehicles and battery powered vehicles. That's a win for not just those workers who are going to get their jobs back. And it shows that, you know, workers bargaining and striking can win um, things outside of the contract. You know, that's not just like, something that they had, that, that Stellantis had to bargain over. They just used their pressure and force to be able to tell them, we're going to affect your investment decision-making strategy as a company and say, you have to reopen this factory. And it moves forward on a uh, move towards a just transition where we can have, you know, sustainable energy, non-fossil fuel energy being used to power vehicles and we can do it while also providing the same type of union lang union contract language for these workers. Because, um, you know, there have been, there's been a lot of growth of the EV industry. And in the Inflation Reduction Act that Biden signed, there was huge federal subsidies for EV, um, EV makers, but there was no requirement that they be union. And so, of yeah. course, what we've seen is a lot of these factories open up in the South and they pay the, the wages that are like half of what auto workers in Detroit are getting. And so, and, you know, in the, in GM's contract, for example, GM agreed to have all new EV company uh, factories um, that are opened um, in the coming years fall under the national contract. So they'll automatically be part of the union now. So these are huge gains that are going to like change the dynamic of how workers are able to um, both benefit themselves and how these companies will be able to go to these um, non-union factories um, and say, hey, come on over. The water's warm over here. You know, like, look what we just got. That's a massive, you know, increase over what they're making. And it changes this dynamic that's been in place at least since, you know, yeah, the, the, the um, auto bailout. Um, back in 2008, 2009, where now the workers kind of are back in control. And the final thing I'll say on it is just that you, just within the past few days, you've seen uh, effort to organize a Tesla facility in Fremont, California, which is, you know, the next kind of level of where this union movement has to go is to um, bring in these new emerging um, companies like Tesla and that's going to be certainly a target for the UAW to try to go in there and um, and organize that facility. And then Toyota, which is non-union, announced it was going to immediately start raising their base pay to $32 an hour in response, direct response to these union deals as a way to try to like stop workers from wanting to unionize. I don't think that's going to work. But in the short term, that's a huge benefit to those workers, too, that aren't even in a union. But they're benefiting now from the fact that these auto workers uh, carried out this successful strike. So I think it is really a game changing moment um, in the U.S. labor movement. And just, you know, if you look at the U.S. economy, uh, 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 you know, in general, I think. And the fact you had President Biden cheering this on, you know, he had gone to a picket line in Michigan supporting the auto workers. And after these deals were reached, he was celebrating them, right? So you, you seem to have like political consensus behind the side of 
um, militant labor organizing um, and collective worker power. And that's something we are not used to seeing, um, certainly in my lifetime in the US. And so I think that's um, really something to um, focus on when we think about you know, where, uh, where this country is moving and dynamics at play that you might not expect to have a big impact on you know, the political fault lines in the country, but really you know, worker power is um, at the forefront right now in 2023, and that's something to be excited about. All right, uh, let's, we probably could do a whole show on this, uh, but you mentioned Tesla and uh, you put it in my brain before we went on the air when we were chatting. Uh, Miles and I talk before every show. It's the chat before the show is almost as long as the show itself. Uh, <laughs> and it's always fun talking politics with you. But you put it in my brain. And uh, Elon Musk, uh, that's the man who created Tesla, uh, is, has made it clear. He is, to use Brendan Riley's words, vehemently opposed. Brendan Riley, we've been making fun of him all week. I am vehemently opposed to, uh, to sanctuaries, uh, to uh, immigrant uh, housing in my ward. Anyway, he's vehemently opposed uh, to unions. And uh, he's, it's similar to the Starbucks leaders, vehemently opposed to unions. And it's like a personal thing. Very strange and twisted personal thing. Uh, Elon Musk is f- fabulously wealthy. Uh, I think he may be the wealthiest man in the world. I lose track uh, from one day to the next miles. I guess it varies with the stock market. Uh, and he's not afraid at, at all uh, to use his social media platform uh, to uh, broadcast whatever insane views he has. Uh, he'll go on the Joe Rogan show if he has to. He'll do, he'll do whatever is necessary. Uh, and in this case, uh, he views unions as what? the enemy, a mortal enemy uh, to uh, capitalism, and he will fight uh, any attempt to unionize uh, Tesla. Your thoughts about, like, the dynamics of that fight that's ahead if the unions truly are going to uh, make inroads uh, at Tesla? Well, it's going to be very difficult um, to organize Tesla. The reason is that... um, you're right that Elon Musk is just um, at his core uh, deeply anti-union. He thinks that unions are a barrier to innovation and entrepreneurship, and um, and it's all because of his economic interests. He knows that if there's a union, he'll have to bargain with somebody, you know, versus being able to have all the power, all the control himself, and be able to force workers to do effectively whatever he wants. Um, he has been, you know, faced multiple lawsuits over um, dangerous working conditions in his factories, over, you know, unfair labor charges. Um, and he has already uh, crushed a number of attempts to unionize different facilities. The reason it's so dangerous with Musk is because he has this massive war chest as, you know, the richest guy in the world i mean it's yeah you're right it's like him or bezos every you know few months it just like um flips but he's uh, phenomenally wealthy and with that means that he doesn't have the same type of limits on his ability to pay out these claims you know he's just he'll commit every you know, labor violation crime in the book to try to block this from happening if it can mean he can, you know, maintain a non-union workforce. Um, 
he you know he's had courts do things like to have him take down tweets because he threatened like union workers stock options to be uh illegal and he's you know done every like trick in the book to try to like make it so that people are scared and think that they're going to lose their jobs if they even you know say the word union the the difference now is that the you know, wind is at the back of the UAW that they've just scored all these huge wins. And now they can go into um, California to this you know, more budding uh, industry of electric cars and say, this is the time, you know, and, and, and now they can put more money because I think they're going to get more, you know, they're already going to start growing their ranks and they didn't have to spend down a strike fund like was, you know, expected because they were able to do the stand-up strike where they only struck at some key facilities rather than had everybody go out all at once. So I think the union is well positioned to put some money into organizing um, and hiring, you know, staff organizers and to get them to really build um, caucuses in some of these facilities that they would be able to force some NLRB votes. The, the, the thing is, it's just going to be when that hit, when the rubber hits the road and Musk starts going on his rampage against this, um, what is going to be the response? I think, I mean, I think there's a PR element to it as well, right? Is that people are, do kind of have some, I think Musk's Twitter activities and like turning it into X and having it like, you know, uh, collapse its users and raising prices has certainly turned some people that might've formerly been um, Musk backers against him. Um, if he starts really going on an anti-union rampage, considering how much the public was behind the UAW in this campaign, I think that could backfire in a PR way. But also maybe he doesn't care because he's just got so much money that it's like hard to see how that you can use the same kind of incentive structure applying to him the way you would to a normal business leader or CEO. So it's, it's yet to be seen, but I, it definitely seems like it's going to happen. Well, uh, and now I'm going to kind of tie things together before we get to our, our final uh, 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 discussion issue. Uh, I, I listen to you, I believe, once again, uh, the Democratic Party uh, has lost an opportunity. And I, the reason I position the Democratic Party is because every single issue that Miles has talked about, Republican Party is completely absent from them. They're far from supporting any of these initiatives that we've talked about, sensible immigration policy, funding uh, the resettlement of immigrants uh, into our cities, helping fund housing programs for the homeless, mental health issues, all these things we've been talking about. The Republican Party is completely absent. Not only that, they're using what political power they have to undercut any effort to help on these fronts. So they're a negative force, a huge negative force. So that's why I say it's, it's like up to one party in this one party, two party system that we have to handle all this. Uh, and uh, I mean, Miles, the electric car industry that has made Elon Musk so wealthy is largely underwritten by government, taxpayers, subsidies, giving people money, giving people breaks when they buy 
electric vehicles with the idea being that overall it's in the best interest of the environment. Something else the Republican Party is completely absent in, in any discussion of what's the future of our planet. They actually think that climate change is a hoax. So they think any effort to uh, save the environment uh, is detrimental, is like what? Put up by the Chinese government to undercut capitalism. It's as twisted and bizarre as their insistence that Donald Trump won the election. So everything is on the left or liberals to to handle. And so we allowed Elon Musk to become fabulously wealthy through government handouts and government tax breaks uh, without any kind of assurance that his labor force be unionized. And I, I sometimes I'm like, what? Well, it goes back to this conversation we had before where we have a Democratic mayor, governor, and president. They want to throw a party in, in, in October, uh, excuse me, in August 2024, but they won't kick the feds, won't kick in any money to help Chicago with his housing issues. So <clears throat> when you look at it uh, strategically, Miles, do you think, as, do you agree with me that this is a huge loss? Uh, of an opportunity and that going forward we should link uh, handouts, subsidies to the electric vehicle industry with uh, a demand that the uh, factories that manufacture the cars have collective bargaining rights, have union rights. Go ahead. Of course. That was that was a huge fight over, I mean, it was initially in early versions of um, when it was still called Build Back Better, the big um, spending plan that uh, the Biden administration was pushing. Um, and eventually that a version of that did get into the Inflation Reduction Act. And it was a big initially there were there were, you know, standards applied that there were and the unions fought for them for there to be requirements that if we provide these massive subsidies to these facilities, that there be, um, you know, the right to collectively bargain um, contained in them. And that didn't pass right like there was not the votes for it it might have been a mansion you know veto it might have been you know just having like some more um business friend friendly lobbying that like uh ultimately killed it uh, but of course i think that those are required and one thing that you could do is also just have the nlrb like be a lot this was in the pro act uh the the, the omnibus like pro labor legislation that also was in the initial version of build back better that got killed um when mansion killed that whole deal but looked like it might be on the verge of, of passing briefly um that was like fifty thousand dollars i think for each like um labor violation which would it would be a huge increase over what companies are forced to pay now especially when those labor violations get stacked on you know you might get like 30 or 40 violations over different things the company does. Suddenly you're talking hundreds of thousands, maybe close to millions of dollars. Um, you could even raise that higher, you know, maybe that we could pass something where it's like, you know, you start, if, if Musk does these uh, brazen anti-union efforts, he has to pay millions of dollars. Maybe that'll start to like, you know, um, take a hack at his, um, massive fortune. We are also seeing like Tesla stock falling after we now just in the past few days. And that is, you know, hits his bottom line. Um, we've seen that happen because I think that there it's clear that um, the future of the EV industry is also going to include these 
legacy car makers like um like the big three and so it's you know people don't have to just invest in that tesla's not the only game in town right and that i think will have some kind of market effect on the decision making but of course yes i think that there's no doubt that his entire empire was built off of taxpayer funded subsidies um that's part of the reason he's in you know he's producing his cars where he is is because he gets those checks from the government to be able to like uh bottom line of you know building a new factory or you know uh, creating uh, uh parts plants and things like that so if we're going to try to make sure that there is um that that unions are part of that then that needs to be applied in um in in future deals uh all right uh that's a conversation to go into greater detail at another time. I want to close uh, with your thoughts on uh, uh, Sakabati's uh, essay that ran in, in these times. I read it last uh, Saturday, I want to say. I think it was last Saturday. Uh, I talked about it with Monroe Anderson uh, yesterday, if you want to hear Monroe's thoughts on it. A very powerful essay uh, by Sakabati, who is an economist here in Chicago, has been on the show. I haven't had him on in a while. Come on, Sak, come on back. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the mayor's budget. Uh, he was in the mayor's transition team, and uh, he was supposed to come on. I can't remember what happened. Anyway, um, very powerful uh, essay. He's uh, said uh, uh, it, he, the days in which he is, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, he's voting for the lesser of two evils are over. Uh, he can no longer justify a vote for uh, Joe Biden for president. Uh, because Joe Biden, among other things, went to in, uh, Israel and embraced Netanyahu right before uh, the onslaught of uh, Israeli uh, bombing in uh, Gaza. Uh, and uh, he just could not stomach uh, a vote uh, for Biden at this point in time. Uh, I know a lot of lefties are telling me the same thing, uh, Miles. And uh, did you edit? First question, uh, talk about the essay itself. Uh, the impact it had had a huge impact. And what impact do you think uh, this uh, will have on uh, Biden's reelection chances? And I'll start with, did you edit that particular essay? Just curious. Um, I, I, I've worked on it a little bit. I was not the primary editor on it, but I've, mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've worked on a lot of our coverage um, around um, the unfolding devastation in Gaza and in the West Bank at this point, and the role of Israel and in the U.S. in um, carrying out this mass slaughter of civilians that is just, you know, it, it's not just a humanitarian disaster. It's just, um, uh, it's like a moral crime to have this t taking place um, in broad daylight. You know, we're seeing uh, massacres, we're seeing, you know, refugee camps bomb multiple times and having Israeli officials go on media outlets and just uh, defend it, you know, outrightly and say that that's part of, you know, war, um, that, that there's going to have to be, um, you know, killings of thousands. It's now more than 8,000 Palestinians have been killed since um, war broke out in early October. Um, and let's be clear, I mean, there were there was, uh, you know, a horrendous um, attack carried out by Hamas on October 2nd and Seven. on uh, 7th that that took the you know lives of um, 1400 Israelis around. Um, and since that time, yes, there's been some continued rocket fire that's been intercepted largely by um, the Iron Dome missile defense system. But 
it's been a one-sided onslaught since then. And that onslaught has um, um, just been carried out on a civilian population that is defenseless, that has already is under siege, that has lim had limited access to water, food, fuel, electricity. And this is, you know, to, 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 to power hospitals, to power generators, to keep, you know, um, uh, machines on that are, you know, providing air for people that can't access it. Um, uh, it's a population that's a half, you know, one half children that has been now we've seen over a million people be um, forcibly um, moved because their homes have all been bombed in northern Gaza. I mean, I think it's like 25% of the Gaza Strip now is essentially inhabitable. I mean, the entire thing is inhabitable, according to the UN, because of the lack of resources there. Um, but this has been carried out by an Israeli government that is unwilling to even conceive of the idea of a um, uh, of, of stopping bombing and trying to protect um, innocent civilian life. And it's um, and it's a policy that's being completely um, approved by our government in Washington and by the Biden administration. There's no doubt. I mean, just lo look at um, what happened the other week when the telecoms went out as a clear act of war and, you know, was called a war crime by a number of international groups um, after that happened, which effectively was a blackout and allowed for there to be. Um, untold violence carried out on more civilians under the cover of darkness because there was no way for Palestinian um, residents to even, you know, contact loved ones, to reach news media, anything of the sort. The U.S. was reportedly behind um, efforts to get Israel to turn on back the, some of those telecom systems. And uh, and eventually they they did to a, to a small extent. And that goes to show that we have influence over this country. We're supplying arms. We're supplying the military aid. We're providing cover at the United Nations where we're the sole veto against these Security Council resolutions, which, um, uh, you know, point out the, the the crimes being carried out by the, the Israeli regime. And so the, the United States plays a direct role in this. And President Biden certainly has given cover um, and um, abetted this uh, just horrendous massacre that's being carried out um, day after day. And we're seeing, you know, new levels of violence and it's all being called, you know, this is to destroy Hamas. Well, much of Hamas leadership is in Qatar. You know, they're not in, they're not in Gaza. And yet this is the, and they just, it's, it's collective punishment and it's retaliation, but it's not retaliation on, you know, the people that carried out the uh, violence. It's, it's, it's on civilians that are, um, you know, you might say collateral damage or something. This is a, this is a people. You know, this is this is this is their home, and we're just seeing um, death and destruction raining from above, and we're doing it with bombs that are provided by our government. So I think that that is at the core of why there's so much um, uh, disgust with the Biden administration, especially among young people and among, you know, Arab populations and Muslim communities. And that is what was being expressed by Saqib in that piece. And we all are, we're seeing it reflected in polling. You know, there's a new poll out this week that showed um, 
Arab American support dropping precipitously for Biden. I think that there was like 50, 58, 59 percent supported him in 2020. And now that number was in the 20s percentage wise. That's, you know, look at places like Dearborn, Michigan, places that are required for if we think about this in purely political terms, of course, that's going to affect Biden's ability um, in 2024. And those who consider uh, Donald Trump and the MAGA right to be a huge threat to um, the rights of Muslim and Arab citizens, not to mention, you know, democracy itself and, you know, the ability to have any type of, you know, social safety net in this country. That should concern everybody because this is, you know, being decisions that are being made now in Washington are going to have effects um, a year from now. You know, we're only about a year out now from the presidential election. And um, if our government decides that uh, aligning itself with um, a regime that was willing to, you know, carry out these massacres that can be described as nothing, if not, you know, um, have it uh, evil at heart, then that is going to you know, turn people away and 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 cause them to say maybe the Democratic Party is not you know representing me. And you're starting to see that in Washington, where now there's 18 co-sponsors of the ceasefire resolution. Just I think in the past day, Dick Durbin voiced at least on a cable program that he was um, backing a ceasefire, which is a huge change. You know, especially considering Dick Durbin. You know, he's not only is he generally kind of a moderate to right. Democrat on a lot of issues. He actually was recruited back in 1982 by APAC to run against a pro-Palestinian Republican in Illinois. And that's how he won his first race to the House. And he's been one of APAC's biggest um, um, fundees like since, since that period. And even he is saying now this has to stop. We need a ceasefire. And that's the call from um, the public in the U.S. as well, you know, 66% recent polls show of uh, Americans, including 80% of Democrats, want an immediate ceasefire. People want peace. Um, it's the it's the leaders that are allowing for this war to be carried out and for these horrors to be visited upon um, the population of Gaza. And I think that that's starting to sink in more and more as this war carries on. Um, and I can only hope that the leaders start to take. Um, that to heart and change their policies so that we can, you know, um, work towards rebuilding peace and life and not um, carry out policies of death. As well put. And I urge everybody to check out Sockup's piece. Uh, I'm not in a position, usually, I said this yesterday with Monroe, uh, Miles, usually when I hear someone go, well, uh, lesser of two evils, uh, I'm doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm not going to uh, vote for the Democrat. I either uh, am not going to vote or vote for a third party. Uh, I've not, I've not seen any who've said I'm actually going to vote for Donald Trump, who will presumably be the uh, Republican nominee. Uh, you, and then I, I, you know, in the past I would have fired back, but I'm not doing that right now. I'm just, it just doesn't seem right at this time. Uh, we've got to have a ceasefire. I, I mean, you know, the assault on uh, Israeli people by Hamas on October 7th, man, that was just, that was brutal, terrifying. But just this eye for an eye, like multiple eyes for an eye, uh, retaliatory vengeance, destroy absolutely everybody, whether they're involved or not, is just senseless and cruel 
and uh, inhumane and uh, just I, I I'm with you 100 percent from the get go. Uh, we sh- listen. I wish the Israeli government had had the strength at that moment on October 7th not to retaliate. But like everybody told me, Ben, that's so you're, what you're asking for is so unimaginable in, in, with humanity. And think about the United States after 9-11. You know, and how many wars, two wars, Miles, were launched uh, after 9-11? And it just, just doesn't seem anybody ever learns or wants to learn on any level. You know, the older you get, people make fun of me, Miles. Like, oh, Ben, you're more jaded than ever. But I never see anyone ever learn from anything you know, on local politics, national politics, international politics. So, uh, Asako, that was a very powerful essay. Uh, and um, well, I know it stirred up some uh, passion. Go ahead, Miles. Well, I think that the you're right, that, that our, our, our leaders are certainly not uh, learning. And if you look at the actions of the Israeli government, I mean, I think that it's political cover for Netanyahu because he realizes how um, much support he lost through... Um, you know, the army there being completely unprepared for the attacks of October 7th, but also even, you know, he was already facing public backlash over his, you know, works, moves on the judiciary and everything. He knows he's like a polit- political sitting duck. And I think he realized that the way to kind of build some type of public support is to carry out a war. Because, you know, when you're in a war, you're generally are able to rally people behind you. But even now you're starting to see in, in Tel Aviv and other places there be resistance to his um, his his war making. And certainly across um, the globe and here in the U.S., you're seeing a massive uh, movement against um, the Israeli government's policies. And that is, that I think is learning in a way is that, and that we're seeing the public be, you know, rising up and coming out hundreds of thousands of people in cities across the globe. And, you know, you look at public opinion polls and even though you, our media is almost all propaganda from the Israeli side, to be honestly, like that's usually what people are fed. They're still seeing through that by a large part and joining together and calling for peace and a ceasefire the same way you just, um, you just, uh, you know, said there. So I think that in that way, there is some, I change now from where we were in um, uh, 2003. Well, uh, and uh, we just, when you said that, I mean, uh, again, the parallel, uh, our president in 2001 9-11 occurred was George W. Bush, America. You elected him in 2000. Uh, and uh, he was sound asleep uh, at the wheel in the months building up to the attack on 9-11. Uh, and uh, it's a huge inadequacy uh, to notice what was going on right in front of them. Uh, and so, yeah, here, let's divert attention from that and launch not one, but two wars. Uh, then he got reelected. <laughs> and Ohio went for him to a large degree because what? They, the, uh, the Republicans manipulated, to your point that you made earlier, Republicans manipulated public opposition to gay marriage. Remember that, Miles, in 2004? That was like an issue. It's still an issue now. The Republicans are bringing that back. And uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, United States, I don't know. You should look in the mirror sometimes because there's a lot of parallels between what happened in this country uh, and what's going on in Israel right now. Uh, yeah, And you're right. 
there are uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelis who are really taking a courageous stand uh, to oppose uh, Netanyahu. And there were thousands of Americans who took a stand, a courageous stand, in my humble opinion, uh, to oppose Bush's war. But they were in the United States. They were a minority, Miles. You know what I'm saying? They were most people were waving the flag. And it was it's not a pretty chapter at all. But uh, just uh, is, did I get that correct when when uh, I think I read this and in these times that when uh, the essay, Sacrifice essay first uh, ran, there was such a demand to read it that the it broke the computers. Were you guys joking or did that really happen? No, I think there was definitely there was some kind of server overload. I mean, it got it got shared quite a bit and has produced a lot of uh, feedback, as you yeah. can maybe imagine, you know, on a number of different sides, because it's I think it's provocative, but I, it's also an important perspective and turning away from it. I don't think benefits anybody, especially not if you you know are of like a left or political or, or liberal persuasion um, and you're invested and not seeing, you know, Republican rule over this country, then I think it's a really important thing to take to pay attention to. Absolutely. And and I that let's close with that is so true because I personally believe that the MAGA movement is a fascist movement. And they came very close to well they were openly trying to steal the election in 2020. Uh, and they're celebrate they think they're gonna won. You know, I've, I've been noticing this uh, in the propaganda I get from MAGA, Joe Rogan show. They they think they've won it already, Miles. Uh, and uh, so this is a very serious threat. Uh, and uh, the Democratic Party, you know, please wake up, Democratic Party, because uh, uh, 2024 is right around the corner. All right. Enough gloom and doom for the moment just the thought of a fascist takeover miles give us you know all the any other particulars you want to uh any other items you want to celebrate from in these times before we head out the door oh of course well from one there is a um, new article published by nashua works um uh, bob who works at in these times about the gathering that's happening this Saturday in Washington, D.C. to voice support for a ceasefire and to stop the U.S.'s policy of just allowing, you know, the Israeli regime to um, do whatever they will when it comes to um, the conflict in Gaza. Um, And I think she really does speak to the heart about how this is a moment of both, um, you know, darkness and seeing the cruelties that governments can carry out when also hope when seeing how people can come together and build movements and support structures to um, voice support for liberation and show solidarity. And so I do encourage people to um, read that. That just went up today. Um, That's kind of a call for people to join um, that march on Saturday. Um, Also, uh, this is something, you know, we don't need to get too deep into, but there is a number of votes that are going to be held on November 7th on um, next Tuesday, including a very important vote in Ohio over uh, this question of abortion rights. And I think we're going to and there's been huge funding, you know, money going into that to try to get people to vote against abortion rights. But there's also been a lot of um, support to on the side supporting abortion rights. And so I think we're going to see what we have seen so far is that when these questions are on the ballot, it really drives turnout and 
voters are overwhelmingly um, saying in the wake of Roe being overturned by an undemocratic Supreme Court that they do support reproductive freedom. And so we're going to see the outcome of that on Tuesday. But there's another question on the ballot for uh, voters in Cincinnati, Ohio, of whether to sell off um, their rail lines, the only municipally owned rail line in the country, um, whether they should sell it off to Norfolk Southern. And this is, you know, one of these classic privatization deals, just like we've seen here in Chicago with the parking meters or with the um, Skyway, where there's, you know, infrastructure that's owned by the public and the city thinks, oh, it can get some immediate windfall if they just sell it off to a private corporation. When Norfolk Southern is the same company that had the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio recently, that was a massive disaster, um, spilled all types of toxic chemicals. And so there's understandably some opposition to that uh, effort that the business, you know, city and business leaders are trying to carry out. And that's going to go to the ballot on um, the 7th as well. And so we have a piece by Carrie Leiterson um, on the on the site laying out that fight and the kind of different uh, forces, both in opposition and support of the deal. Um, and we'll see, there seems to be a lot of momentum on the opposition um, side, and that would be a big deal if they can stop um, the sale of this public rail line to a, a private company. All right, good stuff from the Nice Times uh, and Miles Kampf lesson uh, writes for them and edits them. Uh, if you see it in there, he probably had a hand one way or another uh, making sure it turned out well. Miles, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Of course, my my pleasure. Good to be here, Ben. Yes, and uh, we'll avoid any conversation with my beloved Chicago Bulls uh, till the next time you come on the show because they lost last night, and I don't want to accentuate the gloom and doom on that front. Uh, Miles is also a diehard Bulls fan. I also want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job, as he always does. I know Miles agrees with me when they say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you by the Chicago Reader. If you want to catch up on even more Ben Jarofsky, if you want those bonus interviews that you haven't heard yet, if you want those columns you haven't read yet, you need to head to chicagoreader.com. If you want to follow Ben on Instagram, it's as simple as following at Benny J Show. And if you would, please like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. I really appreciate it, people. Thank you.